Thanks for listening to the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. You can contact the show at twitter.com forward slash dwgroovecast and through Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. Good evening. I am warning you right now, if you touch my drums, I will stab you in the neck with a knife. Ain't a fucking. <laughs> Ain't a fucking. Mom! Lower it. I'm not gonna lower it. I have to do this now. I don't mind you playing it, but lower it. We get straight now? No, we had a problem. I mean, uh, we tried to do everything we could. What do you mean? Well, you know what I mean. Nice. Little trouble there. You're rushing. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Yeah! Hello, denizens of North Groovalina, Groove Tucky, Groovatusits, and of course our long-term listeners in Groove Castistan. Phil here from the Drummers Weekly Groove Cast. How are you doing? Happy Monday! It's Interview Monday again, and we're back in the music industry with longtime, well-respected artist rep and marketing specialist at Aquarian Drumheads, Mr. Chris Brady. Uh, I've known Chris for a long time. Uh, I think we. Discussed about in the ballpark of 18 years or so. Uh, he's been with Aquarian for about 20 years. Uh, his role has morphed since he's been there. Um, he's done a little bit of everything there. He will tell you that he, as well as all the other folks that are at uh, Aquarian, wear many, many hats. In this show, uh, I had Chris tell us a little bit about his background and essentially how it ended up leading him to working inside of uh, the music business side of the industry. Uh, We talk about how he applied and his initial interviews and how he got the job at Aquarian. And then he gives us a little background on the company. He tells us about uh, the founders of the company. I think most of us are are aware that uh, the great drummer Roy Burns is one of the founders. But he also tells you a little bit about his partner, Ron Marquez, uh, who really didn't have that much uh, business dealings in the music industry prior to meeting Roy. And then we get Chris telling us about the products, all the wonderful things that Aquarian makes. And I also have him tell us exactly how a typical drum head is made as well, which is very cool. So you want to check that out. Um, we also spend a good bit of time talking about the business aspect of uh, the music business. Uh, Chris tells us all about endorsements, how to get endorsements and how not to get endorsements. And he also talks about the importance of relationships between uh, the artist and the company. We also spend a little time talking about technology and how it has impacted virtually every aspect of our life and, of course, the music business and how they do business at Aquarian as well. So I thought leading into this thing, we would, uh, why don't we play a track that features some great Aquarian drumheads? I found this track from a little-known up-and-comer named Jack DeJeanette. So uh, let's give a listen to Jack DeJeanette, and then we'll hear a story about a man named Brady.
Chris, thanks so much for agreeing to be on the show today, man. Uh, say hi to the folks out there in Groovecast Nation. Hey, everybody. Hope you're all doing well. And Phil, thanks so much for uh, asking me to be part of this. I'm, I'm glad to participate. and I'm, I'm flattered that you would ask me. Well, let me tell you, I hope you have that same feeling once we get done. <laughs> Wait, whoa. <laughs> Me, right? <laughs> it's good. It's going to be all right, man. We play fair over here. You're not going to bring out any surprise guests, right? <laughs> and look behind door number two, Chris Brady. <laughs> When's the last time you've seen this face? No. Here's your ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's ju- it's just me today. Let me say my co-host John Chalden, who uh, everyone is is familiar with, and I'm sure you've heard on some of the the podcasts. I know you listen to John DeChristopher's. He is uh, he's in jail right now. I have to bail him out. Uh, he was uh, right. part of an Antifa uh, uh, rally. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to go get him uh, <laughs> after the show, though, man. After the show. Uh, so, Chris, let's just start out by having you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself. Um, I know that you are uh, a Southern California native, so just just tell everybody a little bit about where you're from and how you got interested in drumming, and then we'll get kind of get to the business end of things. Yeah, sounds good. You bet. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a SoCal native. I, I grew up in uh, Orange County for the most part, the O.C., and, uh, you know, I had no inclination towards music or drums in particular as a kid. I, I was more into building military models and, you know, tanks and planes. And I, I had no, I just, I didn't even really, I don't recall listening to music per se, other than just what happened to pop on the radio. But I remember going to a junior high orientation. They bust all of us over. We were in sixth grade. And we go to the junior high to prep for, you know, going there, going to school there. And part of the presentation was they had the jazz band. And I think that's probably the first time I'd ever seen musicians, you know, a band, a club. So I'm sitting there in the, with everybody else, and they had the drummer up on a riser. And I just remember, that's probably the first time I ever heard jazz, too. But I remember in the middle of this tune, they gave him a solo. And this guy was really good. He was kind of a local legend. His name is Wayne Brown. And I, you know, I kind of trailed him. He was much older, but, you know, went to high school and Wayne had gone there and everybody, oh, Wayne Brown. But anyway, Wayne did this solo and I just was mesmerized. I'm like, I got to do that. I never had an inclination. And I'm like, I went, I remember going home and saying, I'm going to sign up for band. And I think my parents looked at me like, what? And I said, yeah, this drummer, you know, I was just a kid. So I, I get into junior high and I sign up for band. And this is where it takes a left turn. So I'm all excited, man. I'm going to be a drummer. I get in there and I, you know, they go around. What do you want to play? I said, I want to be, I want to play drums. And the band director looks at me and goes, no, it's not going to happen. He goes, we, we have more drummers than we need. He says, you're going to play trombone. And it was literally like the trombone sound, like, wah, wah. <laughs> I'm like, and, but I was so, I was kind of an introverted kid, very shy and a little timid back then. And so I didn't know to stand up for myself. And I was just kind of internally, I'm like, I don't want to play trombone. And 
but I didn't stick up for myself. So <laughs> all through junior high, all the way into, I think it was my, well, all the way up into my senior year in high school, I played trombone, baritone, euphonium, you know, the march, the mellophone and marching band. And then I think it was my junior year, I finally told my parents, I said, you know, I never wanted to play trombone and I have no love for this instrument. I can, can we please, and I was taking trombone, you know, baritone lessons, doing the whole thing. And I was first chair too, you know, so it was going okay, but I just hated it. Anyway, make a long story stupid. I finally got drum lessons and by my, this was junior year, by my senior year, because I just, I soaked it up. I couldn't get enough of this stuff, the whole thing. And by my senior year, I got to the point where I was good enough, I made the snare line. Because I, I had a really good teacher. This guy was like, you know, the old school. So he was a jazz guy. And we started out, you know, Haskell Har, Nard, Wilcoxon, and that jumped into Podemsky's. So within a year... I was reading out of those books, so whatever they threw at me in marching band, I was like, I, I can play that. You know, it wasn't, and I could read okay, because he really got me on some great fund, fundamentals. So, and I, I never remember, forget, we were out in the field, it was the end of the junior year, and I'm horsing around out there, you know, and the band director's up on the ladder, all of a sudden I hear in the megaphone, because the whole section screwing around, I hear, Brady, I see you out there messing around. I know you want to play drums next year. If you don't get it together, and he goes into this whole thing, I'll find you. I hadn't really come out of my shell yet, so I'm probably beat red like a lobster. I'm flipping out because now everything's stopped and everybody's looking at me. But uh, it all worked out good. I... I I practiced and I worked hard at it. And by my senior year audition, and I got into the drum line, and I just loved it. And it and it really was transformational for me on another level because, like I said, I was really shy and introverted, and just getting into drums it gave me a sense of purpose and identity, and it really helped me come out of my shell. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't know if you had a similar experience, but it really kind of helped me not be such a, a wallflower and just so timid and, 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 and you know, nonverbal. You know, there's something endemic about being as being a drummer that makes us somewhat, a lot of times, de facto leaders, you know. And so I think that has something to do with it, too. It, it certainly, for most guys, uh, is a confidence builder. I think, because a lot of times we are looked upon as leaders in bands. So I think that's there's a lot of validity to that. Well, I, and, and, you know, let's let's face it. Drummers get a bad rap, but we, you know, we did our fair share of clowning around in the drum section. Uh, but we also worked really hard. We had an instructor, Charlie Craig, who marched vanguard. And so it was hardcore practice. I mean, we were a pretty good line and we worked hard. We had fun, but there was also, let's face it, there's a sense of coolness being in the drum line. You know, I won't disparage other sections, but when you're a high school guy, teenager, being in the drum line is, is something that you're 
you don't mind telling people. Oh, oh, as sure. Opposed to maybe being in another section. Yeah, it, it certainly has a little more cachet than being a mellophonist. Yeah, that wasn't, pardon the pun, I wasn't really tooting my horn on that one. Oh, come um, on. I, I mean, there, there's a drum set behind you, Chris. Go play a rim shot really quickly, right? Yeah. yeah. Let me see. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, Chris. I'll just, do, I'll, I'll just keep the sticks with me. That'll be happening throughout this interview. All right. Hey, I want to I step back and I want to ask you one quick thing about uh, Wayne Brown that you mentioned. Yeah. Did you ever tell him that he was a, kind of a de facto mentor for you or at least an inspiration? No, because I was always trailing him by three or four years. Yeah. And so it was always hearing the legend, you know, so like. When he was doing that orientation concert, that was probably his last year in junior high. Yeah. I, and then so by the time I got to high school, he was on his way out. Mm -hmm. And I think it was his last year. And then again, I was in the horn section. So to go up to him and I wasn't even playing drums then. So yeah. I didn't, you know what I mean? I didn't have a, an inclination to go, hey, I saw you because he didn't know me from Adam. You know, and... uh so I never got to tell him, but maybe if, you know, by whatever means he hears this, uh, he he's got me into this whole thing watching him do that solo up on the up on the riser. That's what started it. That man, that's that's very cool. I hope he does you hear. Because a lot of people see, you know, well, I'm 52, and so obviously guys 10 years <laughs> older than me, or maybe even my age, are gonna go. I saw. Well, I didn't see, but you know, older guys would say, oh, I saw Ringo on the Ed Sullivan, that's Ed Sullivan, and that's what got me into drums. Well, that, I just saw the local kid, you know, it wasn't, I didn't even know anything about drums or music. It was just the local guy doing his thing. It wasn't a superstar drummer going to a concert or seeing a, seeing in a magazine or anything like that. I just happened to be at this orientation, and it was a local guy triggered the whole thing, and and then, you know, I graduated high school and uh, decided I was going to be a music major. And I went through that whole process. I got a BA in, in music performance. I went to Fullerton and I went to Long Beach State. And I was sort of on the, I guess you'd call it the seven-year plan. Sure, yeah. <laughs> but I, I muscled, I gritted my teeth and muscled through it and finished and got the degree. And, and that's always some sort of accomplishment. I wouldn't say I was a, a disciplined, uh, stellar student, but I, I did get through it and not to go into too much stuff, but through all that, I worked part-time, uh, in store music stores. I taught lessons and I gigged and that's how I put myself through school. Um, you know, those three things. That, so it's always been, Revol uh, you know, revolving around music in some way. Uh, to, to step back and talk about your education also, just quickly, what was the name of the teacher that you studied with when you were in high school that, that put you through Podemsky and the Nard books and Haskell? Who was that? His, his name was Bill Thomas, and he looked like, again, this maybe for older people, but he looked, he kind of looked and sounded like Ward Bond. Ward Bond was this actor that was in all, like, Wagon Train. Yeah. And a lot of the John Wayne. He was in a lot of Westerns. And this guy kind of looked and even sounded like Ward Bond. But he was a really cool guy. And, like, when I started playing, 
I was on a practice pad for a year before he ever put me on drum set. You know, everything's so immediate now. Kids want to start right on drum set. And I'm not saying that's good or bad, but I, for a year I was on a pad and then we got on drum set and immediately the only drummers I knew were jazz drummers. So I was listening to Buddy and Louie and Max and Philly and Elvin uh, and Shelly Mann because that's what he hit me to. And those are the things. And I didn't start getting into other types of drummers until a little bit later. Then it was Billy Cobham. And then it was Vinnie Kaliuta in high school. Totally freaked me out. Some A buddy of mine, Pat Woodward, bought over a, a I think it was Shut Up and Play Your Guitar. And I, because that, that time I was a Cobham head. I was like, Cobham, no, he's the best. And I heard the Vinnie thing. And it just spun my head around. I wasn't even sure what I was listening to because my ears, you know, even now, half the stuff Vinny does, most people can't. It's Greek. But back then it was real Greek. But I knew it was something amazing. And uh, and so that got me into, you know, then you go down that scene and now you're into, you know, Bozio and all the guys. Yeah. That everybody. Weckle and then Picaro and Gad and Carlos Vega, Steve Jordan, and then, you know, Bonham, Stuart Copeland, all the usual suspects. Then at that point, I was soaking in and enjoying all of it. Sure. So, Chris, you made it through, you got your BA, and then what did you do after that? Did you try to like do the professional musician thing for a while, or were you, did you yeah. start out looking for, for like uh, industry gigs? No, no, I, you know, in my, uh, in my tiny little mind, I thought I was going to be, <laughs> you know, the next guy. Uh, but uh, through all that college work, I was always playing and teaching and working part time. Uh, so I was always doing, but I never really made it past, you know, the local level. So it was tons because there were still a lot of clubs back then. So it was a lot of top 40 gigs and maybe a little smattering of corporate gigs and then some wedding gigs. And so I was playing every week. Um, and then a couple of musicals, I got recommended to do a musical by Bissonette, Greg Bissonette. He was one of my teachers. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, in high school, I think it was the end of high school, I started studying with uh, Mr. Wackerman, Chuck Wackerman, and then that morphed into some lessons with John, mm-hmm. and then I pleaded with Mr. Wackerman, can, can I take some lessons with Chad? But, man, was I out of my league. <laughs> I had about eight lessons with Chad, and I realized, you know, be careful what you wish for, because talk about being in over your head. I wasn't ready for that. I just, you know, Chad would write, I still have all the material too. Chad would write out charts on the spot, like just off the fly. And they were like Zappa type charts. It'd be like, you know, three bars of four, four, then a fill in three, four, and then seven, eight, and then nine, 16, right? And then some of it would be interpretive and some of it would be, he'd write out exact fills. Yeah. Like a Zappa kind of like, uh-huh. no, no, you this fill exactly and then you make up a fill and then he would play through them two or three different times different ways just to show like how you you know 
he wasn't doing things by rote. So the, the, the fills that were stated, he would play those the same way, but where, where it was open for interpretation, every time it was different. And that was sort of my lessons. And I couldn't, that was beyond me at that point. But it was a lot of fun. So the Wackermans were great. And then Greg Bissonette came through. The, when he first moved here, he was doing a top 40 gig with a band. And they were in uh, Belmont Shore, like uh, off of PCH down in, in SoCal. It, I think it was a Rusty Pelican. And he pulled into a gas station where that guy, Pat Woodward, remember mm -hmm. I told you? Mm -hmm. He was working there, and he calls me, and he goes, yeah, this drummer just came in, and he's doing a gig. He was lost, and I told him where the place was, and he says he's in Mono Drummer. Look it up. And so I, I'm on the phone. He's at the gas station. I go, yeah, he's, he was in a Vic Firth ad. And I go, yeah, he's there. There's a little transcription. And he goes, well, he's playing at the Rusty Pelican. Let's go check it out. And we went that night and watched. And he was, Greg was so amazing. Again, I had never seen, now at this point, I had never seen a drummer, you know, other than obviously studying with Chad, but I hadn't been to a whole lot of gigs or shows other than, you know, me playing. And he was so amazing. And I, I distinctly remember it. They played Missing Persons Noticeable One. Uh -huh. And he, there's an ending field that goes, slowly it goes, Bozio plays, and he, Greg got to that end fill and he beamed it. He nailed it. Freaked me out. I was like, whoa, I'd never seen a guy. He played a Bozio fill. You know, again, in my small mind, it was like, so then we went up and talked to him. And he goes, yeah, I teach. You guys want to take lessons? And Pat and I were in. We used to drive up to Woodland Hills every week and take lessons with Greg. And I studied with Greg for like, I don't know, like four or five years, I think. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. Amazing lessons. He really became, he's a, he's a friend, but it's almost weird. He's more like a mentor. Yeah. I don't know how to describe it, but I, I think of him on a different level. Not even, he obviously a friend, but there's such a awe and respect for him that he's more in this weird sort of higher plane of, you know. Chris, was this was this before his stint with uh, David Lee Roth when you were taking yeah. the the lessons? He, he had just moved out here. He just finished playing with Maynard. Maynard, yeah, yeah. He literally, just had moved here, so he was doing top forty gigs in teaching just to get his you know get established and keep playing. But none of the none of the quote unquote big gigs had started to happen yet, and. Um, he was living in a house. It was, it was he and his brother Matt, and I think another bass player, Bob Birch, who, God rest his soul, passed away. He, Bob was playing with uh, Elton John, and it was the three of these guys, and and Greg was driving some yellow Brady Bunch station wagon, and yeah, so he wasn't, he was just getting himself established. Cool. So. Chris, you got through school, and then you started doing some gigs. Somewhere along the way, you obviously had an opportunity to get into the business, get into the music industry business, I should say, which obviously leads you to where you're at now. And you've been and you've been an Aquarian for quite a while because, man, I've known you for 18 years. Well, I've been here 20 years. Yeah. So how did you get into the industry side? Sure. This is one of those... Uh 
come to Jesus moments, you know. I started analyzing my play, and I was okay. There was nothing, there was no spark of anything there, you know. Just, And I sort of had a re- realization, like, am I going to ever get to play, and this is just my own personal thing, I don't put this on anybody else, but if, will I ever play to the level where I'll actually be happy doing this? And when I say, I always have to preface this, when I say play to the level, I'm not talking about flash and chops. Right. I'm just talking about the core things that every drummer has in common, every great drummer, which is the sensibility for the music and a, and a really amazing sense of time and groove and feel. And in and amongst that, I got married and kid, a kid, uh, my first daughter was on the way, and I thought, well... I'm getting older here, and it's not happening uh, for whatever reason, and I need to make a decision. And I was working in some music stores that went under, one one in particular closed down. I thought, you know what, there's some local manufacturers here. I'm just going to put out, what do I have to lose? I'm going to put out some resumes, and I did, and one day I'm sitting at home, a couple of like a month later, and Roy Burns calls. And I had known about Roy, obviously, the drumming stuff, but I also knew him from the business side because when I worked in music stores going to the NAMM show, we sold aquarium products. So that was always a trip to the aquarium booth to get the new literature, get the new pricing. That was part of, you know, what you did, working in a drum shop and stuff. And so here I get this call, and he goes, hey, we have an opening. Uh, Would you like to come down and interview? I came down and interviewed, and I was scared out of my mind. I mean, I, you know, oh, talk about butterflies in your stomach. Well, it's not only it's not only for the job, but you're interviewing with one of the great drummers in history (laughs) as well. Well, yeah, all that, and you know, so it was like the feeling of the first day of school. You know, (laughs) when you're (laughs) fifth or sixth grade or somewhere, you feel like you're gonna throw up, and so I do the interview, and I go, and I think like a week later, he goes, yeah, the guy's leaving, and the job is yours if you want it. And that was 20 years ago. What did you come in as? What was your position? My initial uh, position was um, artist relations and a little bit of sales. There was another guy that was the primary salesman, especially for domestic uh, accounts so I did a little sales and 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 helped out with the export accounts and then over the years you know we're a smaller company so and I think this is the way with the, even bigger companies especially these days everybody wears a lot of different hats uh, and and we certainly do here nobody you know we're not big enough where we can have specialists Sure. Well, I only do this, and I don't, you know, boom. No. So over the years, you know, it's it's morphed into a lot of different things. Obviously, still artist relations and dealing with, you know, the chain stores, the big store, box accounts, um, uh, still handling, uh, I don't know if I just repeated myself, but the export accounts. And then other things like getting into the marketing arena, like the lo- our current logo was an idea that I had when I first started working there, and so that was the logo that's on the drums now was my design, and um, and 
working for Ron and Roy here has afforded me a great opportunity because you do wear a lot of hats and then you don't necessarily uh, get too myopic and become a one-trick pony. So it's, it's afforded me the, the, the ability to learn a lot of different things and develop some other skills and really understand a broader picture of the business in the industry. So it's been great. Chris, something that I would like for you to, to tell if it's not privileged information um, is how many people actually work at Aquarian. And the reason that I'm asking this is because I think there's a ton of misunderstanding with the general drum buying public. They think that all, you know, when they think of a company, they think this is a, this is an enormous, you know, this is an enormous wieldy, unwieldy beast. They think of it like Ford or IBM, you know, and the perfect, the perfect example was, um, we went down, uh, and hung out with Paul Cooper at Gretsch down in Ridgeland, South Carolina, a couple of months ago. And, and I've known, I've known Paul for quite a while. And I remember going down to Gretsch about, 15 or 20 years ago, and there were a grand total of six people that were working there, and they've expanded to the just unwieldy, unfathomable number of 19 people now. And and a lot of times, I, people, I will just ask them off the top of my head, I'll go, how many people do you actually think work at this company, you know, at Gretsch? And I'll say, now I want you to keep in mind, it's a small company. And a lot of times they'll go, oh, maybe a couple hundred <laughs> you know, so so give everybody an idea. How many people work at Aquarian? Well, you know, and that would be the case if you're a Yamaha or a Roland, right? Or something. And they obviously those those kind of companies do have hundreds of employees, and they have several locations. No, we, we're a much much smaller company. I mean, I don't know the exact number, but off the top of my head, maybe seventy ish, seventy five, somewhere in there, all told. Right. Mm-hmm. So not a, not a huge number. Gotcha. And I and I suppose that number has just steadily increased over time uh, as far as like I'm sure that it's my understanding when when Ron and Roy first started the thing that it was more than just drum heads that there were it was a, a, a specific kind of electrostatic coding business was one. Well, yeah. And again, I, so I don't get too lengthy here and this turns into a a five part. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Nobody wants that. Um, Ron and Roy got together because of Ron's powder coating business. Ron was one of the first powder coaters in SoCal and he did tons and tons of work, especially for like Schwinn and Mongoose BMX bikes and a host of other uh, companies and products they and, and manufacturing too i think ron actually not only coding the bike parts but making the handlebars mm-hmm. uh, they did some of the manufacturing here too and so ron was doing that and that's in the building that i'm in now which has now since strictly become drumheads and then Roy was at Rogers Fender CBS Rogers which was up the street i believe in Fullerton and I think uh, Roger or CBS Fender and Ron were already doing work because Ron was powder coating some of the metal stuff maybe for the Fender Rhodes. Uh-huh. So there was already sort of a business connection there. But Roy and the R&D people at Rogers were looking at different ways to deal with hardware as well, maybe powder coating being one of them. 
And of course now, you know, you see a lot of powder coated lugs and mm -hmm. hard stuff. So that's how their relationship started with meetings um, to partner with the hardware. And then Roy's done many interviews, so I don't need to get too into this, but you can you can look up Roy and hear interviews, but he talks about things going south at Rogers and he no longer wanted to be there. And he relayed that to Ron and Swan said, hey, come back over here. Let's start our own company. Let's make something. And I think some of the first things they made were like, there were no drum heads. Mm -hmm. The company started in 1980. And I don't think drum heads came around until like 1987-ish. So the first things were accessories like, you know, the cymbal springs and maybe some sticks and some little ancillary things like that. And then the drum heads came later. Right. Well, th that's the perfect segue to start talking about some of the products. And some of them naturally do predate your employment there, but you certainly know more about them than, than anybody else who's listening to the show. Just, I want to name a few of, of the products and just go over them and then you... Just tell us what comes to mind, if there's anything in particular you want to tell everybody about it. And the first one is the cymbal springs. Um, let me tell you, I can't even think of playing an inverted china without a cymbal spring. I mean, I've just used it for so long. Do you know what was the original thought? Who was the originator of this cymbal spring? Well, a lot of those, I think a lot of those early ideas would have been probably emanated from Roy. Yeah. I wouldn't even say artist at that point because they probably didn't even really have artists, you know. Uh, so that's probably Roy. Uh, I would I would guess bet money on and, you know, it was a way to have the whole symbol move in unison as opposed to rocking back and forth on the static post on the symbol, you know, to help prevent it from uh, cracking or breaking. So the whole thing kind of swiveled as a unit. And there's a heavy version and a medium version. I'm, you know, medium for like crash symbols and stuff and and a heavy for maybe a ride symbol or a large, larger china. Right. Yeah. You know, if you, if you use the heavy and you put in a, a splash symbol in there, now it's going to have the reverse effect. Sure. <laughs> you probably break the splash symbol because that's not, you know, the, the thing isn't moving and breathing with the weight of the symbol. Right. Right. Um, so let's go ahead and now start talking about some some drumhead innovations. And sure. if I say safety lock hoop, what does that mean to you? Uh, again, that goes back to Roy. The design of the hoop, you know, because Roy comes, he's, you know, one of those legendary guys from that era uh, where he was on the tail end, or not even the tail end, but, of, you know, playing on calf heads. Mm -hmm. And the calf heads were tucked around a wooden flesh hoop and that wooden flesh hoop was sort of a rectangle shape. It wasn't, I don't believe it was round and it wasn't a U shaped or it was a rectangle, like a narrow rectangle. Mm -hmm. And if you look at our aluminum hoops, it's a rectangle shape. And part of the reason for that, I think is, uh, it helps with the rigidity and, uh, which, you know, it holds the head a little more evenly, 360 degrees around, and so you get uh, a little firmer material held in place. So, um, 
you know, it helps keep things in, in tune from detuning. And um, I always find that, especially when I first started working here, I noticed our heads tuned up quicker, it, meaning it took less turns of a drum key mm -hmm. to get the head tension in, in pitch. Um, you know, because you're so used to playing other heads where you maybe have to over tighten it. And I, I remember the first time I put on an Aquarian head, it sounded like a timbali because I was just kind of going by, you know, intuition, a feel from other heads that I'd played over the years. And I quickly realized, oh, I don't, they tune up a lot quicker. And that's primarily because of that safety lock hoop, the, the square or the rectangle shape of the, the aluminum. And then the safety lock, there's a T channel in there. And then our little lip on the other side. So when that resin goes in and, and surrounds the, the drum head material, it locks down into that T channel and creates a solid block that then resists pulling out completely. We've all played heads where all of a sudden, not the plastic pulls out, but the glue, the whole thing comes out in one chunk. Um, and so that, that T-channel, the safety lock, kind of forms a whole solid block of material that then really resists pulling out. Well, I, I know... It, from my experience of playing virtually every drum head you guys make that in particular when you, when you put new drum heads on I never hear the popping and the cracking and the snapping uh you know of of glue or the drum head and then the other thing that I, that I've noticed is I never have to tune up above pitch to stretch the head and then bring it back down into pitch exactly and that's that's all really due to that safety lock uh, hoop yeah, and the e-channel and all that. Now, tell the folks about True Collar that's on uh, the drum heads because that's something yeah. I don't think a lot of people really realize even what the collar is on the drum head. Yeah, the sound curve, co curve collar. Uh, you know, some drum heads may have um, a little bit more of a formed shape where ours is more of a natural curve. So it, it lends itself to adjusting to the bearing edge of any type of drum maybe a little easier because it, it doesn't have, you know, like a pronounced angle or shape, like going from the flat part of the head as it curves it in going into the, the aluminum flesh hoop. It's more of a gradual rounded thing. So, you know, the, the thought being that it would grab the bearing edge at any point. That's the sound curve collar. Right, that that in tandem with the safety lock hoop is obviously again they kind of go hand in glove, especially from the tuning aspect of things. It seems like, yeah. yeah. Uh, Roy likes to say that the super kick drum head put Aquarian on the map. Uh, as far as that goes, who came up with that idea? Because I remember a as a kid when that thing came out that that was you. Every you had to, if you were going to play any kind of a muffled bass drum, you had to have the super kick. Again, going, you know, I think I have my Aquarian lore correctly. That would probably be Roy, and at that part, maybe response to um, our customers that use the heads and artists. They probably had artists at that point, mm -hmm. and so that was maybe something like, gee, blankets and pillows and. And I think that's probably where that whole thing generated. But I'm sure um, 
you know, one of the primary movers on that would have been Roy. And actually the first version of that, if I remember correctly, wasn't the super kick. It was the impact bass drum head, which we still make. And the impact, for all intents and purposes, looks just like a super kick, but the width of that felt muffle is much wider. Mm -hmm. And they had that first. And the feedback they got from artists, uh, you know, the artists, and I think uh, the drummers out there using the heads was, it's a little too much. So then that's where the super kick came in, because that felt muffle width became narrower. And and it, it opened it up a little bit more. And then that seemed, just making it not so wide, uh, was seemed to be the perfect combination with what guys were looking for. Gotcha. I want to go ahead and jump ahead and talk about the vintage series of heads that that came out. I guess it was in probably in the late 90s when those uh, started coming out. And one of the things I want to make all I think the list 92-ish. Yeah. 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 I, I, I want to make the listeners in particular aware of the American vintage uh, drums for those folks who like vintage drums. It's a been the bane of a lot of people's existence, especially vintage drums that are wrapped that sometimes modern heads don't want to fit on there very well they're just a little bit too narrow in other words i've i've literally seen guys take rubber mallets trying to put heads on vintage drums the american vintage roy had a absolute just a brilliant uh thought of making drum hoops just slightly larger to go to go on those vintage drums yeah you nailed it i mean as you you know, because you're, I think you are more familiar with vintage gear maybe than I am even um, on a first hand, you know, like actually playing this stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, old Ludwig's and old Gretsch and even some current stuff. All drum companies aren't spec'd out the same. So even mm-hmm. new Gretsch and new Ludwig, you'll find the the OD of those shells bigger than Yamaha, Pearl, Tama, Sonar. Sonars are generally undersized. So right off the bat, they're not always exactly the same diameter. And then on top of that, when you put a thick wrap, or maybe the shell is a little out around, or like you said back in the day, I don't know if you call it a scarf joint or whatever, but like on some of those old Ludwig drums where they would have a wrap, if you if you recall correctly, that wrap and the wood all tucked into the other part of the wood shell. Right. You know what I'm saying? Wrap wasn't even on the outside. It would tuck into the inside of the wood right. as it wrapped around. So that created a big lump on one side. And yeah, getting heads on uh, and off can be a little dicey. And you know, when you when you if you need a rubber mallet to put the head on, you're you're not gonna get a good sound. I mean no. it might be okay for quote unquote bebop tuning where you're tuning tight and you're getting more of a head sound than shell sound anyways. But if you really want that thing to be throaty and resonate, it's it won't won't happen if the head's binding like that. Yeah. Chris, regarding just the rest of the build of both the the modern vintage and American vintage heads, what differentiates the build of those whether it be the mylar or the coating from just like the regular texture coating? Yeah, well between the modern vintage and American vintage, there's no difference other than the diameter, the right. American is about, I'm um, you know just a ballpark it, like a sixteenth larger than our normal size tubes, our normal size tubes, not other drum heads. Mm-hmm. And then um, the main difference is the coating. 
it's a it's a different grit, a thicker coating. And so this again, this harkens back to Roy in the calf heads. He wanted a head that had the first of all the the feel and the sound of a, a like an aged calf head. So maybe a little thicker, obviously a little warmer, and then uh, then the appearance of you know kind of a, a yellowed aged calf head. And that's what the vintage series is all about. And it's really the coating. It's a, it's a different coating. And that extra thickness and weight has a dampening effect. So it's going to change the feel slightly. And that gives you that warmer, rounder sound. Gotcha. Um, let's talk a little bit about the actual mylar that, that makes the, the drum heads. Um, for the longest time, you guys had your own kind of a proprietary mylar. And it was... When you got a clear head, it was a little bit hazier than some Correct. other companies. And then several years ago, you guys made a switch, and you went to a new Mylar. I think you think you guys are calling it New Bright, right? What what aside from the, the the difference in one being a little bit clearer, what was the primary reason for changing that? Yeah, like when I first started here, you're right. The Mylar, the the Mylar was hazy in appearance and the coating was actually different too the coated our coated head used to be called satin finish right because the coating had a texture to it but it wasn't like a traditional grittier you know coated head it was a little smoother satiny mm -hmm. uh so then at some point we switched the coating and and again all this stuff is now at this point all this is being generated by Consumer input and artist input, you know, guys going, hey, we really want a more of a traditional coated head. And same thing with the Mylar. Now, I actually, um, I really kind of personally, I like the old Mylar because, man, it gave it, you know, it gave it that round, warm. I, and again, this is all personal preference. I wasn't looking for so much attack and bite. And I kind of liked right. it. But I think there was an overwhelming request and 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 sort of a hue and a cry like, you know, we want something that has a little more bite, that's a little brighter, a little snappier, poppier, all those, you know, descriptive terms. And so that's how the newer Mylar, you know, we looked at different um, plastics and, and tried some different things and settled on what we're calling the new bright. Um, uh, and it's great because you can still – you know, you can still achieve those warmer, rounder sounds just by picking the right series. We have series that have built-in muffling, like Studio X, Focus X, and then the coatings, and then the double plies. Mm -hmm. And those, by picking those, those can still help you achieve that warmer, rounder thing if that's what you still desire that you're looking for. Gotcha. Um, one of the newer products that have just gotten rave reviews and, and love playing on them are the series of super pads that you guys have put out. I guess just a few years ago that those started coming out. Correct. What was the impetus? It's like, like we need another practice pad, right? But this, these practice pads are legitimately very different from anything else that anybody's putting out right now. And, and they also, for those who are not aware of it, they, you guys make them to fit virtually every drum, whether it's, you know, toms, snare, something to go on the, the kick, etc. that sort of thing. 
who came up with the idea of the super pad with the coating? Well, the super pad that was born out of the electronic uh, electroacoustic uh, things that we were um, experimenting with and making and then selling. Um, so really, before the super pad, it was the on head, which we still make, yeah. and that's the. It basically looks like the super pad, except it's got a built-in FSR trigger, you know, laying on top of a substrate. And then it's got a little electronic tail coming out. And, and how the super pads came about was, that was, I think, probably more artist-driven. Artists would come into our little drum room here at the at our shop, which is where I'm at now. And we would have, we had them on a kit. And a lot of times, before you turn on the electronics, they just play on them and they're like, Man, these feel great and these sound great because when you put them on the acoustic drums the whole the whole thought behind it you know the the super pad version is it it's not it's not taking we're not trying to eliminate all the sound of the drum it reduces the volume of sound but it still affords you some pitch and some sound so that when you practice you can have musical practice. So there's still tonality and pitches and you can be musical in your practice as opposed to just hitting some thuddy pieces of wetsuit material or whatever that stuff's made out of. Um, but that all came from artists playing on the onheads going, man, these things would be cool just as, pra you know, as practice pads on the drum set to, to mute, help me bring down the volume. And, and they had a great feel. You know, that new bounce, uh, not new bounce, now I'm having a brain meltdown. As my oldest daughter would say, Dad, you're losing your memory. But the rubber that we use on that has an amazing feel. And, you know, it didn't take long before. And Roy would be in here on those sessions. And he goes, well, let's just, let's just, this should be its own thing too. Let's just get rid of the electronics in the tail and make this a whole system for the kit. Which is, that's how that came about. Well, I, I'll tell you. We talk about practice pads and practice on the show from time to time, and that's one yeah. of the ones that that I want everybody to check out. If you haven't checked out before, there's only a few that I really like, and and the the super pads are a wonderful invention. So so kudos to you guys over there for sure. Um, so Chris, now that we've told everybody about a lot of the the products and especially the proprietary things that that you guys do over at Aquarian, why don't you take us through? sort of a step-by-step -step process of how you would actually create and make and get up to the point of shipping just a, let's say a 14 inch sure. texture coated single ply drum head. I'll do my best. Sure. Because, you know, wearing a lot of different hats here, I've done all kinds of different things from even sh shipping and getting orders out the door if need be, you know, for emergency, like, you know, you get that emergency call from the artist, hey, and sometimes I just got to run out there and do it, and, and you know, because the, uh, the guys are busy doing other things. Making actually a drum head is not something that I've done here. Yeah. Um, but I've seen the process done, and, and I may be leaving certain things out, but generally, when you look at a head, you think, gee, what, like you just said, what, what could possibly, there's not much going on here. But you get the roll of, of film, drum head film, comes in big bolts or rolls. That has to go on a machine to be cut to proper sizes so that you can get the most yield out of a piece, right? Then that get, has to get put on steel rule dies 
that have the shapes, mm -hmm. that has to go into a hydraulic press to punch out the, the, the disc, you know, the circle of plastic. Um, that's just the initial part. Well, I think it's also probably interesting to note and tell everybody that all these have to be, these are pri proprietary machines that you guys are using that, to, yeah, to do this. Not, there's not, like, you don't sit around one day and you go, gee, you know what, I think it'd be cool to start a drumhead company. Let's just call Acme Drumhead Supplies. It's not like restaurant supplies. Right. There's not a place you go, okay, we need some mold machines and we need this. No, you have to, you have to think this stuff up. You have to adapt it from other pieces of equipment. You have to kind of, you know, modify things or have engineers draw stuff out and, and have it made from scratch. So, yeah, the, it really, so I guess the first part of the process is being have the, 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 the right equipment. To, yeah. So let's assume we have all the equipment in place. So then once you have the disc, then the next thing would be to put it into the mold, which is, you know, hydraulic press with the shape of the drum head with a little heat and pressure puts that what we talked about earlier, that sound curve collar in there. Um, and then from there, the excess material from the plastic has to be trimmed. Uh, you know, and then at some point in conjunction with this, the hoops are being cut and bent to the right shapes. So once you have the drum head in the right shape and the hoop in the right shape, then that hoop now goes to our hoop welding machine, which joins the two ends together. Then from there, the plastic gets put into the push, you know, molded into the the aluminum hoop itself. Then the next part would be the resin goes to a, a glue gantry or a resin machine that puts there's a little nozzle that puts the resin like a lazy Susan, the head spins around and the, and the glue, the resin gets put in there, that locks it all down. So I guess that would be the base part, but as you can see already from there, there's a lot of steps and handling going on. Mm -hmm. Now from that point, now you've got coding and dots and you know studio X rings and focus X rings and all the little you know ancillary things that might get put on to, to modify the sound or change the tone. But, you know, and then it gets logoed and all those. And there there could there's processes in there that I'm probably leaving out. But that's the basic overall nutshell version. But uh, you could just tell from there, there's a lot of stuff going on to make what looks like a fairly simplistic thing. <laughs> well, and and also there's there's a lot of hands-on things that are going on as well as, well as just the actual machine manufacturing aspect. Oh, so there's yeah. still a lot of hands-on stuff. So, Chris, when you start this drum head from when it's individual parts to the time that drum head is in the box and on the pallet ready to be shipped out how long does it generally take to make a head you know that i actually don't know uh i truthfully don't know uh i, I don't think you know assuming that the hoops already been cut and bent and ready to go you know probably not too long were you talking minutes? Well, or or hours, because I'm sure that that the the glue drying is probably one of the well, the longest yeah. parts. I yeah. mean, in hours they can churn out hundreds and hundreds in an, an hour. Gotcha. But, yeah, um, yeah, you're right. The thing's got to cure up. I mean, it's it's fast curing resin, but it's not like the resin goes in and bam, put it in a box. Sure. It's, 
resin's got to cure up. And then the coating too, when you put on the coating, you know, that has to sit for a while to cure up properly. So you have good adhesion. So yeah, yeah I mean, it, it takes a while. So what are the best selling models that you guys have? And also, it, and you can also throw in there any of the accessories or as well, things that just fly off the shelf for you guys. Sure. Well, I mean, there's the tried and true. We, you know, let's let's do go the low hanging fruit first. Yeah, um, and that's obviously the super kick. Mm -hmm. That's the that's our best selling head, and that's the head that people really know us by, and that people identify us with. Mm -hmm. You see that even guys that use other heads, you know, you look around and you see oh, on the bass drum there's a super kick. Yeah, and then high energy heads, performance two heads. And then cymbal springs. Uh, and then obviously recently, some of the newer vintage line, the double-plied vintage heads that we have, and um, the super pads. And of course, the new reflector series. That was sort of a collaboration with one of our artists, Eric Moore. And uh, that head has become super popular. We did a, we've been doing a series of artist videos here. I think we've done 10 so far. And they're really awesome, and they've been really successful. And that Eric Moore video with the reflectors went crazy viral. I think that on one Facebook page alone, some Facebook page in Brazil re-uploaded the video. On that one page alone, it's over 12 million views. Wow. I think all told, it would be fair to say that things easily... I know it's over 13 million, uh, and I would say maybe 14 million. Anyway, it, it just went off the hook, and so that is a really popular head now. You know, I'm really surprised. I, I'm sure that the plain texture coded have to sell really well. Yeah, but you know, I guess it all depends on your playing style, but I think you know, generally there's so many, you know, guys and, and, and gals out there playing in, in more intense situations, meaning they're hitting harder. Yeah. And, you know, I could get away with playing on a single ply head, even doing a top 40 gig. You know, just it's the, the way you hit the drum and the volume that's needed. But when you're touring and you're playing almost every night in stadiums and stuff, you got that energy level. There's no way a single ply head's going to hold up. That's that's like asking for a unicorn or something. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go ahead and say right now, my my great underrated sleeper Aquarian drum head is this the plain old texture coated. To me, that's the the best single ply uh, coated head on the market. Man, I use it on all the toms. I use it on everything. Man, it's just it's wonderful. Great drum I, head. I, Bill, I'm totally with you 100. percent I mean, yeah. If I'm still playing a lot. I always gravitate towards a single ply head generally. And that's what I'd be using, white coated, or even when I was still playing top 40 when I first started working here, I loved the Jack D Jeanettes. Mm -hmm. A lot of our endorsers call them the Jackie D's. Yeah. The semi Jackie D's. And I, I use those, and even the single ply vintage heads, modern vintage, I would kind of fluctuate between those three again they're all basic the base head is the same it's a single 10 mil piece of material and the coatings are different yeah but i'm with you that that for me personally that's one of my favorite heads 
So, Chris, now we've talked about products. Let's let's talk a little bit about business. Let's talk about the the business side of things. The biz. The biz. And you know what? I want you to be brutally honest on this because, I mean, our, our listeners can take it, but they love this kind of stuff. Tell these folks what well, I is... I can't be brutally honest because then I could get myself into hot water here. <laughs> <laughs> I know, Roy. Roy I'm doesn't pull any punches. <laughs> so tell everybody what you have to have to get an endorsement and how not to do it. In other words, how the incorrect way. You bet. And uh, um, yes, I will. I will get into that. I mean, basically, again, this is this comes back to that really having a good self awareness and a, and a and a realistic self assessment. Like when I was playing top forty gigs. And I was in my mid twenties. It never occurred to me. It would never have occurred to me to seek an endorsement. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, but now the landscape has changed for a variety of reasons, due to the number of companies and the internet and the whole thing. And so now you have artists that you're taking in from broad spectrums of abilities and and musical environments. Um, but I think the first thing is really assess, am I really at the point now where I should be reaching out to a company? And then if you really feel you, you are at that point, then if you have connections with other drummers that are associated with the company that you want to be involved with, ask them about it and then ha- maybe have them feel it out. Put in a good word for you. That goes a long, a long, long way. Good references. And then if you're going to cold reach out to a company, you're going to do a cold call, basically. Make sure, especially with the emails, really, we're so into this social media where we've almost gone back to hieroglyphics, where everybody uses emojis. We reverted back to hieroglyphics. Nobody even uses words. So I would always say, construct a sentence, construct a paragraph, put your thoughts together logically so that you have a professional approach to the company. I can't tell you how many emails I get where there's no even a greeting or a salutation, no like, hello, Aquarian, or hello, Chris, I got you. It's just like, how do I get endorsement? Not even how do I get an endorsement, how do I get endorsement? And endorsement is spelled with a C in there somewhere. And I, I, to be quite honest with you, those emails I don't even entertain because in my, you know, the, uh, and, and I know, you know, Ron or Roy would, would think the same thing. If you can't take the time, this isn't important enough to you to take the time to really state your case in a professional way. If you're, if you, you know, can send, if you, if you can only send a one sentence thing that's spelled wrong and there's no punctuation, then how do you expect the company to really want to go down that road and take you seriously? Sure. So that should be the first thing. Like, get all that together. And then, past that, then are you doing it? What's the reason? You know, now, the ultimate goal, the ultimate thing really should be, and, and this sounds cliche because everybody says it, but really, it's it should be true. Play the gear that you like. 
don't go for the easy, low-hanging fruit. Well, I really want to play Zildjian, but I know they'll never talk to me, so I'm going to go with company whatever because I might even be able to finagle a free set of symbols out of them. That's the wrong approach, and, and, and at some point, this is a fairly tight-knit small community. The word does get out. I think drummers are really shocked, even amongst competitors. You know, I know the guys over at Remo, and we run into each other, and we get along fine. I know Chris Hart over there. He's an awesome guy, and we share stories. We'll, we'll actually communicate. So you can't, you know, you can't just assume that notes won't be compared and that you 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 won't be found out. So I think it in the, in the best world, it's it would be great if you were sincere about what you wanted to play and approaching that company for an endorsement. Uh, that would be the first step of the whole thing because once you've got that in line, I think then things go a little easier and it makes more sense. And then, you know, and, and Phil, feel free to interject here because I'm just, I'll start yapping. So yeah. <laughs> if you have a thought or want to have it go in a d different direction, just say. Um, but then after that, you then you have to think, well, what do, you know, it's one thing if Steve Gadd calls you up and goes, yeah, I'm really interested in your stuff. You're not, you don't have to debate it. But if you're a relatively unknown artist at this point, you know, you have to think, what do I want out of this endorsement? What's what makes sense? What's what's realistic? You know, I've gotten I brought endorsers in and literally, you know, and they're not maybe recognizable and they're not on a quote unquote visible gig. And weeks later, they're like. Okay, when are we going to do an ad? Or when are you going to bump me up to the next level? And and there's part of me going like, huh? What? <laughs> well, that that also, Chris, brings up a an, an interesting subject uh, regarding guys that might end up asking for an endorsement, getting it, and then they don't necessarily naturally play that gear, and then you go. Like company shopping, or you go company hopping, hopping. You go from this symbol company to this symbol company to that symbol company to the next to the next symbol company. Like you said before, that's one of those things that you and I both know drummers that have done that for for whatever type of gear. But the other thing I wanted to ask you is this: Is there a type of gentleman's agreement that you guys have at different companies that you don't go out and poach other players? that have endorsements with other companies? Yeah, I don't know. It just depends. Um, I don't know if it's a gentleman's agreement. I know from our perspective, and this comes from Roy and Ron as well, we, we have really never gone after somebody else. And I would never be at a show, and I would never be at an event, and get in a guy's face if I know he's a Remo or an Evans guy and give him my card and say, hey, if you're ever thinking, I just, Roy would not want that done. And also my personality, I would not do that. It just, you know, it kind of skis me out a little bit. <laughs> but uh, so that's our approach, meaning most of the artists we have, 
comes from recommendations or they they're already playing the stuff and they're true they're true fans of of the company and the and the things that we make and so they reach out to us and 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 truthfully that's probably the best way sure it's it would be easy to get artists that you know you could go out and go hey we're going to give you x amount of stuff per year we're going to put you on a clinic tour uh we're going to put you in x amount of ads that's intoxicating and that would be easier to pull you know that's fairly easy to pull people away that's that's a hard thing to resist but uh all of our artists have come to us gotcha yeah. now you just mentioned also clinics and that's something along with another topic i want to pose to you in a few minutes about just how the overall retail business has changed but also the the educational and the clinic business seems to have drastically changed over the last say 20 or 25 years or or, or so and it, it's just really morphed in a different direction I know that Aquarian is committed to education, but what do you guys do regarding clinics? Do you guys actively support different clinicians, and how? What kind of support do you do? Financial, gear related, etc. Sure, that's a great question. You know, I just um, I just listened to uh, the John De Christopher podcast, which was great. I think that was a two parter. Like, what was it? Fifty two. Episode 52 and 53, I think. I think that's right. And um, he, I think you asked him the same question, and he touched on this, and I don't really know what I can add, you know, to it um, that he didn't already say. Um, You know what I mean? He, He really hit a lot of good points. But, you know, we don't have a huge budget for clinics. We're really in education, and we have a lot of great educators. Uh, and obviously, because of Roy, uh, he's one of the premier educators, right? So mm-hmm. there's a, there's a special place in our hearts for that and a fondness for that. That's how I met Roy. There you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most people. The mm-hmm. first thing was, oh, I was at a Roy Burns drum clinic. Yeah, um, I, I actually took some lessons from Roy back in around 1990. Mm-hmm. Lucky you, man. Yeah. Awesome. You know, that's, what a great... Thing to be able to you know take advantage of so yeah we're education's big for us and we have a lot of great educators but again we are a smaller company and like John DeChristopher said um, budgets the landscape has changed this isn't the, the the heyday of the 80s which he got into budgets have changed the internet's had a lot to do with that you guys talked about that um, so we don't have a big program as far as got you know artists and clinics. We don't we don't set up clinics. You know the bigger companies usually do. Like the symbol drum head or drum set companies will be the ones that set up, get the thing started. You know, like he was talking about the mission from Gad thing. Well, mm-hmm. that would that would have been. Yam, Zildjian and Yamaha spearheading that and then them getting the other companies involved and sometimes we get tagged in on that but we never uh, you know are the the impetus for a, a clinic tour um, because again we don't have that kind of budget we have so many artists as all companies do 
And there, are, and there are a lot of great, many of them are out doing clinics. Hey, I'm going to be doing a thing at my local store. Well, if we shelled out money every time a guy was doing a clinic at his local store, you know, <laughs> we'd probably be in the hole. We're here to make money, not, you know, uh, because it has to make sense. Like, like Johnny, you know, guys in the industry call him Johnny D. Like what Johnny D was talking about was in the old days, you could get a store to commit to buying product to help offset the cost. It was it was a real collaborative effort. But companies don't have those budgets now and stores don't have those budgets. So to really pay a guy's clinic fee, you 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 have to be sure that, okay, if we do this, whatever level of company you are, it's gonna generate sales. You know, you can't go, oh, we're gonna give this guy two or three hundred dollars our portion for a clinic. And, and John said this brilliantly, especially talking about accessory companies. Well, how much stuff is going to have to be sold where that makes sense? Because he was talking about, yeah, sure, if it's drum sets or cymbals, you, you order maybe one drum set, couple of sets of cymbals, and that helps offset the cost that the company contributed, right? But you got to sell an awful lot of heads and sticks mm -hmm. to, to get to that point. You know what I'm saying? A couple of snare drum heads or a set of drum heads is not going to have, at some point, the dollars and cents don't make sense. Right. So our approach is basically case-by-case -case basis. Depending on the artist, the location, is it a store that supports Aquarian? Is it the artist at the level where we think, this guy motivates people to want to use what he's playing? which means sales. And if all that makes sense, yes, there might be some small amount, but like John was talking about, it's 100 bucks, maybe cut 150, 200. Mm -hmm. That's very rare. We just don't have the budget to drop in like that on every clinic occasion. So that's how we handle it. And you brought, I think you, you brought this point up too. The internet's changed all that. You guys were talking about the fact that now I'm, like I said, I'm halfway point. I'm 52, and I'm a little more old school. I like books. I like magazines. I don't like to look at a book digitally or a magazine digitally. And I still have CDs. I like to physically hold the things, look at the liner notes. And I still think the best way to see a drummer is to go into a small club if you can and sit 10 feet from that drummer and watch that's the best experience but you've got a whole different generation now i have two daughters and they're teens that's just not the mode of operation and you i think you said it you could go in and type in steve gad clinic mm -hmm. 10 pages deep of steve gad clinics and you've got all these young kids now young folks they're more than happy just to watch hours worth of steve gad clinics now you and i know and John DeChristopher knows nothing beats going into a club and, you know, sitting next to Vinny or Jeff Picaro back in the day or Carlos Vega at the baked potato. Man, I don't care. Internet, nothing. Nothing will ever replace that because there's a vibe and energy level. They're moving air. You're feeling that air hit you. That can't be replaced. But the landscape for whatever it is, has changed. And now the internet's full bore, 
and you can you can see all this stuff online and and you know people are happy to do that uh and i take advantage of that too but then that means maybe they're less oh i just watched 10 pages of so-and-so clinic why do i want to travel an hour to go to this store and see him play now you and i probably back in the day we'd make that mecca trip oh done, done hours, it many times i do it you know me and my buddies used to go every week to the baked potato we'd go see Vinny play with dog cheese mm-hmm. and i mean every week and we're you know struggling college guys you know, money, we'd scrape the money up or go see Jeff Picaro play with Los Lobotomies or Charisma. You'd make that trip up to Hollywood, even though we hated it. You'd do it, you know, and I'd do it now if, if, if that was, you know. Oh, here's a cool Jeff Picaro, Jeff Picaro thing on the on YouTube. I eat that up as much as I can get it. But, man, if you know that guy's playing up in L.A., I'm going. But that all that all affects you know, what people are going to do. And that waters down things to the point where maybe people aren't as motivated to go out and physically sit at a clinic, which is a shame in a way. Well, and and while we're on this topic of technology and how it's changed clinics and education and whatnot, I also want to just start finishing up with talking about how technology, the internet, has affected just the retail business as well. Do, Do you feel like that the majority of your sales now are made through online retailers or do still the guys still go into stores primarily and buy drum heads? Uh, I think people are still going into stores and buying stuff. Again, this is one of those weird things where to me, I can understand buying certain things online, you know, like socks and underwear. Yeah. But buying instruments, I mean, and it's again, this is my mindset, and I realize we're in a whole different thing here. I get it, but I could never buy a a, a symbol off the internet. I know snare drum. I I just I'd have to hit it and play it and feel it. You know, with heads you can get away with a little bit. Oh yes, I if you know the product. Oh, I know the super kick. I don't need to go. T- you know, I can order that off of. You know, whatever. Musician Fran, Amazon, Sweetwater, Sam Ash, all that stuff. You know, interstate musician. Um, but even drumsticks, because I know they're weighted differently on purpose. You know, there are medium weights and light weights and heavy weights. I would, I would still need to go in the store because I'd want to feel the weight. Uh, but there's a whole different culture now. And, and I would go so far to say it's not the wave of the future. It, it's here now. This whole thing, well, this, no, 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 no. It's been here for quite some time. So you either have to sort of change the way you, you do things in your mindset or you get left behind. And there's, there's stores now that are doing gangbusters because they've embraced social media. Yeah. And they've embraced Internet sales. And they're doing fine. And then there's some that want to just stay in, in the, the old way, like when I worked in the store, which is, you know, the brick and mortar and and not embrace Internet. And a lot of those times, those those retailers are struggling. So you have to understand that this isn't the wave of the future. It's been here for quite some time. And you either get with the program or, you, you know, you could get left behind. Well... Chris, I have 
pretty much made it through everything I wanted to talk about. But before we finish up, I wanted to ask you, is there anything else you wanted to tell the listeners, anything about the company, anything about life in general? Yeah, I would just say, you know, take advantage of of all the things that you do at any point in your life and don't don't gloss over it or fluff through it because you really don't know when all these experiences are going to come to light later in life. And I recently was asked to go back to my college, Long Beach State, with some other alumni and talk to the students there about what life is like outside of the college environment and what we've done with our degrees because all the, the, the people that they've asked, it was a guy, Dave Hatmaker from Yamaha. He's an audio creator, engineer. And it was myself and a couple other people, one that got in the film industry. And the point being was we're not doing what we thought we'd be doing as students there. But all the things that we learned there, and we're still all involved in the music business in some way, and all the things that we've learned have, have stand us in good stead. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. we use that stuff. Like, I wasn't a big fan in college of the orchestral stuff. I just, it didn't resonate with me. But I'll tell you, I understand it. And when I deal with our artists that are orchestra players, I can communicate with them. And I get what they're after because I've done enough of that to understand and you know being able to write out music I mean I'm not a composer but to to understand how to read drum like I still do I used to do transcribing and you know you would think just beyond your own personal gratification and learning stuff well you know but even that skill I ended up through Bissonette I got hired by DCI to do two of his books. I think it was private lesson and playing and reading and soloing with the band. I did all the transcriptions for that and DCI hired me. And then they liked that so much. They said, well, we're doing a Chad Smith one called, um, what's it called? Red hot rhythm method. Mm -hmm. And I wrote all that out and that was a job. I was getting paid for that. And so you're like, well, you know, I don't want to learn how to read. I don't need all these little skills. You know, I did a transcription for Modern Drummer one year. It was a Vinnie Colaiuta transcription. You don't get paid a lot, but I got paid something. And point being, all these little things that you learn and skills, you never know when they're going to come to fruition later. And it may be years. And I would also say really get into knowing uh, like a, a digital workstation kind of thing, which you're probably using now to record this. Right know now. Your way around that. Know your way around Photoshop and, and get some uh, uh, video editing skills because, boy, as a working musician, that's going to come in handy to make yourself more autonomous and working at a company. I mean, you're at a company, you can say, Oh yeah, I can help you shoot a video. Oh, I can edit that. I can stitch that together. I can I can put the sound with the video. All of a sudden, your stock goes up. You're more valuable, and they're oh, you're not just a one-trick pony. You can do that. Oh yeah, I can do all that stuff. So I would say just in general, soak all these life things up because, you know, when you're young, you think hey, I'm I'm never going to need to know that, or that's I'm never going to. It's like with math, right? I'm never going to need to know. <laughs> 
But boy, yeah, maybe not immediately, but at some point, all these things you you you'll you will use and you'll be surprised. Great advice, because learning that stuff certainly isn't going to hurt you. That's for sure. It's going to hurt. Yeah. So, Chris, since you've listened to the show before, do you know what's coming next? You I think you're going to ask me about stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, go for it. Shoot. Okay. So, w- what we do with our interviews, we like to have a little fun toward the end of the show. And we call it the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast Rorschach Test. And so what we do is we have a series of 20 short questions. They're little short yes and no, true or false, short answer style questions. And so I've got 20 of them here for you. And uh, it's got a little bit of a unique slant, you being a SoCal guy. So whenever you're ready, and I don't want you to think too hard on any of these questions. I want it to be gut reactions, man. I'm, gut I'm reactions. Right now, this, if you ask me sports questions, it's not going to go well. Well, let me let me say this. They are they're not necessarily sports questions, they're opinions on something. Okay. Just just play along, Chris. Come on, fire, man. Fire away. No no harm's been done so far. So that we know of. Here here we go. Question number 1. Wood tip or nylon tip? Wood tip. Nam show. Summer or winter? Winter. Clear or coated? Coded. What's your favorite rock band? Oh, man. Come on, man. (laughs) I don't have one. Okay, I'm going to go cliche. We're going to go back in time. Zeppelin. In-N-Out Burger or Roscoe's House of Chicken and Waffles? Okay, this is going to sound bad, too. I've never been to Roscoe's. Shame shame on you. I'm going to say... But I've been in and out many times, in and out. What's your favorite drumming method book? Oh, man. This is going to sound weird, but one that really opened up my playing, opened up my mind to things that I was hearing and didn't know but because I could read, I could see it then, was that Rick Latham, Advanced Funk Studies. That's a, I love that thing. That's a great choice, man. It's a classic. That thing opened up my mind to that style of drumming. You know, you're talking in the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and all that stuff. And you're wondering, wow, what? And then when I saw that on the page and I could practice it, it just, that, that one, for some reason, I really gravitated towards. Cool. Snare drum, wood or metal? Metal. When tuning, tune by ear? Or use a drum dial or other tuning device? By ear and feel. All right. Now, here's your first nemesis question. Dodgers or Angels? Well, I don't watch baseball at all, really. But since the Angels are literally (laughs) five minutes from us, I'm going to say Angels. See, now, I know where this next question is going to go. I was going to go Kings or Ducks. I'm just going to go ahead and put down Ducks. Go for it. You're right, because they're at the Honda Center down there. All right. New drums or vintage drums? Um, Yeah, I know you just want a one-word answer. I I don't know. New drums. PC or Mac? I don't own any Mac stuff, so PC. 
you will be happy to know that you're the first person who has said that, but yet I am recording on a PC, so you win. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> well, see, for the creative world, generally, right, artists, musicians and stuff, but, you know, all we use here, you know, we're all using PCs every day. So uh, for me, PC, and I have an Android phone. I love it. So, yeah, PC. Ben, we are we are kindred spirits because I am the same thing. I have an Android phone as well. So There you go. Yeah. See? All right. Ralph's or Safeway? Uh, Ralph's. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Match grip or traditional grip? Started out traditional, but played match forever, so I'll just say matched. Elvin or Tony? Tony. Beach or mountains? Mountains. Soft bags or hard cases? Soft bags. What's your favorite TV show? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, you know, I've been watching recently... Uh, Walking Dead and Gotham. Walking Dead shot right here in town in Atlanta. Oh, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. All right. Ooh. Now here's the million dollar question. Yeah. When Aquarian is referred to with ambassador or emperor weights, do you just nod with acceptance or do you want to like choke that person out? I go Brazilian jiu-jitsu and <laughs> make a choke. No, uh, I actually, you're going to laugh, but I use those terms a lot myself because it's a frame of reference. It's a reference point that especially, you know, well, any age drummer, it's a good jumping off point where people understand because we, we know that we have a lot of different lines and other companies do too. So if you say, you know, well, I'm looking for this single ply. You mean like an ambassador weight? And they'll go, yeah. And I'll say, well, that's our texture coated head. Well, I, I really love a two ply head. And I say, you mean like an emperor weight? And they go, yeah, yeah. Well, that would be our response too. So I don't. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a good universal place that we can leap off from, so that I can help people get, you know, the head they're looking for. So it's not offensive then. I uh, know. Yeah. Chris, man, you've been tremendous, brother. Right back at you. We'll, we'll go like California, you know. Well, let's do lunch sometime, Phil. Have your machine call my machine. And we'll do this. <laughs> now, this has been a lot of fun. I, I, I don't do too many of these. I haven't done a whole lot of these, but this has been awesome. Well, I've, I've had a blast. Well, well, thank you, man. I, 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 the listeners will absolutely go nuts over this. The, and like I said, be be prepared to get a barrage of hate <laughs> mail. Hate, hate mail, and how, what do I need to do to get an endorsement? I heard you on the show. <laughs> that's that's the bad part about the internet. Is like no matter what it is, man. There's always going to be those few people that go. This guy sounded like a total, you know. That, now you know why actors always say, I don't read my own press or I don't look at the reviews, right? Yeah. Now I get it. You're yeah. right. It makes sense. Well, l let me tell you, for the most part, 
all of our people that we communicate with that listen to the show are, are sweethearts. And one, one of them, one of our, what I like to call our power listeners, is a mutual friend of ours. And we like to say his name on the show to embarrass him, to get his friends to, to poke fun Who's at him. That? Dave Johnstone. Oh, he's awesome, man. He's great, man. He's 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 been one of our biggest supporters from day one, man. That guy, he's tremendous. He's a bad cat, man. That he guy is. can play some serious drums. Yeah, he's a great player, man. From jazz to rock. Yeah. I mean, he's on point for sure. Yeah. Well, Chris, say say goodbye to the folks out here in Groovecast Nation. Goodbye, folks. Thank you. All right, that's going to do it for another week here at the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. Big, big thanks go to Chris Brady out at Aquarian Drumheads. It doesn't take much to realize why this guy has been so successful in the music industry. He's just a really nice, genuine, sweet guy. And let me tell you, we need guys like that in our business. So please, buy Aquarian products. Go out there, get those drum heads, buy your favorite accessories, cymbal springs, practice pads, etc. Um, they make super high quality products. I've been playing them for years and years and years. And thanks to you, the listeners, for finding us, for subscribing to us. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, you can find us at a variety of different places. If you're not a subscriber yet, we're available at iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, SoundCloud, really anywhere you can get podcast you can find us if you can't find us get in touch with us and to get in touch with us you have a whole plethora of ways uh you can email us we are at drummers weekly groovecast at gmail.com or you can interact with us on social media at facebook we are at facebook.com forward slash drummers weekly groovecast and you can tweet to us if you're a fella or a lady who likes to talk in 140 characters or less we are at DW Groovecast, or you can put it in old school long form, www.twitter.com forward slash DW Groovecast. And we don't like to beg, but we will ask you the next time you're in iTunes, please swing by our Drummer's Weekly Groovecast page inside of iTunes and leave us a short written review. It helps us. It helps other listeners find us. They relate to us through other podcasts that are of our same genre. Then that way, they can listen in and you can talk and converse with them about the show. And you don't have to make fun of them any longer. They can be part of the cool kids here in Groovecast Nation. All right. That's it, folks. For John Chalden, this is Phil. And we'll see you next week with a brand new episode. Bye-bye. <laughs>